0: Hello and welcome back to the Mostly Weather Hall of Fame So far in this series we've inducted three people into our Hall of Fame So we've had Robert Fitzroy, uh, Beaufort and also James Stagg from World War II And today we're going to introduce another member of the meteorological fraternity, shall we call them, into the Hall of Fame And to do this I'm joined today uh, by Catherine Ross Hiya Doug McNeil Hello there And Jeff Norwood-Brown Hello And my name's Claire Whittam. So, guys, I'm going to induct today our first female Hall of Famer. Hooray! Which I think is uh, something that needs to be done. uh, But actually has caused quite a lot of challenge in trying to find someone suitable. Uh, So I even asked Twitter a bit for some input. So if anyone out there is listening and has some more female uh, people they think would be suitable, do get in touch with us at at MW underscore podcast. But for today, we're going to look at a lady called Joanne Simpson. So, has anybody heard of Joanne Simpson? Nope. Not yet. <laughs> no, not before we came to the podcast recording. And I think that's really interesting as well. So, um, she's really little known about, and it wasn't somebody I'd come across either um, until I started doing this research. Um, so, I think within sort of core meteorology, she was probably quite well known. But beyond that, and I mean, we'd class ourselves, I think, all as atmospheric scientists. And Jeff, you'd probably class yourself as a meteorologist, even, would you?
1: I'm, I'm classed as a foundation scientist. Okay. <laughs> so apparently that means I should be buried.
0: Really. <laughs> but but you come, you you've studied the weather, you know.
1: Yeah, I work on uh, one of the research aircraft that we um uh, we have use of here in the Met office, so yeah.
0: But that's fine. So you so I would say you know a lot about weather, you know a lot about flying, but you've never heard of Joanne Simpson. No,
1: I've never heard or of Or
0: Joanne Malchus Simpson as she sometimes referred to because she got and married I'm, and I'm, changed. I'm her not name.
1: proud of that fact.
0: No, and so but that to me again is really fascinating. So um because she was uh very famous uh within certain circles but it doesn't seem to have that fame doesn't seem to have spread like Mic- micro famous
2: people. Ben Goldick calls it doesn't he? it's like oh, really? really famous within okay. small circles yeah yeah so, um but um we should talk maybe about um a, a lack of women in in meteorology and science in general and the challenges that are faced by women even today right um it it seems crazy um that there aren't more famous women in meteorology is that is that just because there weren't any or because um uh, of our, of our innate biases or you know it would be fascinating to, to talk about that later.
0: I think we should definitely come on to that because that was something she was really interested in as well and actually um I've got a copy of a paper that she co-authored with another female meteorologist in 1974 um where they actually do a survey of women in meteorology in the states and they look at some of the factors so Seventy-four, what's that, thirty-five years ago nearly? Um and some of their findings, it's really rewarding to see that yeah, they've evolved. And some of them you think
2: we're still, mm, Yeah, still. <laughs> maybe
0: not. <laughs> I think I think women are much better represented, but yeah, we should come back to that. I should tell you a bit about who she was first, probably. So she was born in nineteen twenty-three in Boston. Um and she died actually in two thousand and ten. Um and so one of the ways I found out about her was to there's quite a lot of obituaries around, particularly in the American uh, press. And the thing that really stands out uh, in those obituaries is that she was the first female meteorologist to earn a PhD, or the first female to earn a PhD in meteorology, putting it another way. And that was in 1949. Uh, and this is, you know, quite a groundbreaking achievement, really, I think. But th- the one thing I'm slightly nervous about is there's a very American bias to this. So if anybody's listening from outside of the environments of the UK and America and are like, no, there were lots of famous female meteorologists <laughs> in our country, do you let us know. Um, and so she, she started off almost as a typist, um, in a world where, you know, it was very male dominated science. And then World War II, um, in the States anyway brought in a lot of women into the scientific areas because the, the men were off fighting in the war and they needed to bring people through. Um, and so she went to the University of Chicago. And was very interested in the weather already. I think she'd been like a keen sailor as a, as a child and a teenager. And, um, she was also a student pilot, which again, I guess maybe there's a link to the war there. I'm not sure, but one of the things she had to do as a pilot was take a course in meteorology. And so she studied this course, got completely fascinated by it, wrapped up in it and said, Oh, I want to do more of this. How do I do more of this? And in the end, she studied under somebody called got uh, Carl Gustav Rosby, which might ring a few bells. Oh, yeah. yeah,
2: Rosby rings bells, definitely. Very uh, famous.
0: Yeah, very famous. So, um, I mean, the thing I just instantly went off my head was like oh rosby waves that sounds familiar and it's the same person um so i'm looking at jeff because i'm wondering if you can give us a brief description of what a rosby
1: wave was on this it's it's a, a a perturbation if you like in in the in the jet stream basically and um so the jet stream normally travels from uh, well over the uk it's normally coming in from the west. Uh, but it can develop uh, wrinkles in it if you like um, and these, are, uh, these were discovered by Rosby um, and they are fundamental in the development of low pressure areas and and that sort of thing, which is as it tracks across to the uh, tracks across east towards the UK, this is where we get most of our inclement weather from. But they're known as rosby, rosby waves. They're just, as I say, just wrinkles in the jet stream, really.
2: So you see them in the ocean as well, actually, Jeff. Now, so I studied um, a bit of this for my masters uh, a few years ago now. But you see Rosby waves at the uh, sort of uh, at the uh, interface between two um, layers in the ocean. So the upper layer and the, and the bottom, uh, and a deeper layer. So layers in density. So you've got a lighter fluid on the top and a, and a, a more dense fluid underneath. And you get waves, really long wavelengths, um, in that, um, uh, at that boundary. And they only travel, uh, west in the ocean. Uh, sorry. Uh, yeah, they only travel west in the ocean and they get kicked off by El Nino. Uh, for example, is one of the things that kicks them off. They're huge waves that travel all the way across the Pacific and take a decade to travel across. Yeah. So the signal at the surface is like perhaps two or three centimeters um, um, at the at this gr- at the gradient, this um, sort of change in density. They might be sort of tens of meters high, but at the surface you only see them ten centimeters. But they travel, you know, over these huge distances over a decade, and you can only see them because of satellite oceanography. So if you if you um, if you fly a satellite over and over and over and over and over over the pacific and it's got a radar on it basically that can tell exactly how high it is then you see these tiny 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 perturbations uh, in the surface and they interact with currents and stuff so th- these were only discovered you know very much later that kind of um that kind of size of event can only be, just be discovered with really long monitoring programs much later than the theory set out
0: by Rosby himself, by Rosby I, himself I guess. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting, actually, the way that uh, technology has proven some of the theories because that that has also happened to Joanne Simpson and so we'll hopefully come back to that. But so she's clearly already, you know, even from an early age as a sort of a bachelor student or something, studying under somebody who's got eminent ideas, very good physicist, meteorologist, um, but who was kind of very, uh, I get the impression, slightly dismissive of women in in meteorology as it sounds like most of the workers yeah. in the field were <laughs> for, uh, at that time in the sort of 40s and through into the 60s and 70s I think um and she became very interested in clouds and Rosby kind of dismissed it as oh well no one else is interested in clouds it's a good thing for a little girl to look at <laughs> yeah which you know it's it's hard to <laughs> it's reported in a few things so you you it, it's not clear whether he said it in jest or in all seriousness but whatever that's what she went uh, on to to really focus on um and has come up you know with the the foundation of really kind of cloud physics cloud modeling um uh, as we know it today i think um and there's a quote uh, that was made by um the director of the National Center for Atmospheric Research uh, which is also known as NCAR which is one of the big uh, research centers in America that says there is zero doubt that there has never been a more capable woman in meteorology and she would also be in the top 5 of all meteorologists in history no matter the gender which Boom. is Yeah, exactly. Uh, And none of us have ever heard of her. (laughs) So a few of the things um, that she went on to to look at. So I I found another paper, which is very technical, actually. It was written in 2003, um, which says Dr. Joanne Simpson had nine specific research contributions to the field of meteorology during her 50-year career. Um, We won't go into all of them, don't worry. But they are, number one, the hot tower hypothesis. Anyone? I don't know nope. that one. <laughs> no, blank looks right. This is quite interesting. So we'll come back to that one. Uh, number two, hurricanes. So quite broad, but, um, some interesting stuff there. Number three, airflow and clouds overheated islands. Number four, cloud models. Number five, trade winds and their role in cumulus development. Number six, air sea interaction. Number seven, cloud cloud interactions and mergers. Number eight, waterspouts and number nine, um, Something called Trim Science, and Trim was a satellite uh, campaign. So I think what I want to look at probably is uh, just a few of these, and uh, we can maybe try and explain some of the details. So the hot towers thing is really interesting. This is where she really started her her um, work and her theorising. And um, actually, listening back to um, the episode on the dynamics that. Doug, you and Neil did with Eddie Carroll. I think that was episode nineteen. Um, and you're talking about the cells and you know how heat is transferred from the equator further north. Yeah, the,
2: the huge kind of atmospheric sort of broad flow patterns within the atmosphere that that that, that set up because the um, because uh, it gets warmer at the equator and cooler at the poles, basically. So it sets up these huge uh, circulations.
0: And so she was starting to look into that at the poles, and they did uh, they had some measurement data, uh, and they were looking at sort of the, the moist energy that you saw as you went up through the atmosphere. And it was known that you sort of had more moist energy near the surface and it kind of dropped off as you went up with height. But what they actually and a co-worker then saw is that actually the energy then increases again as you go further up. And the mechanism for how all of that moisture is getting up really high, we're sort of talking about over 10 to 15 kilometres in the atmosphere, wasn't understood. And they were basically starting to postulate that actually you needed a mechanism to do that because otherwise this sort of layer in the atmosphere would actually start to cool and then all of these circulation systems would break down. Um, so they came up uh, with a theory um, that they initially called undiluted chimneys which, you know, has a, has a bit of a ring to it, but, um, I think kind of popularly got it called, uh, termed hot towers. That's much better. Which is much better, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Much more catchy. Um, <laughs> and it's the concept that in big, uh, kind of cumulo nimbus type environments, you have a core of air, which is very moist, very hot and almost acts a bit like a, a jet or a fountain, if you like. Um, and it's not entraining air from the outside and it's, kind of rocketing all this material really high in the atmosphere, keeping its moisture and then releasing all this moisture and hence uh, latent heat and things high up in the atmosphere. And so you don't need very many of those uh, to get a massive transfer of heat and moisture from the surface up to the atmosphere, um, which then is starting to change the balance of the energy balance, Mm -hmm. which you've talked about before. Which is really fascinating. And I mean, it's not something I'd ever really thought about. We've talked about cumulonimbuses in the past, I think, on the podcasts. And Jeff has waxed lyrical on clouds and things in the past. I know a bit. You know a bit. <laughs> yeah. um, but this isn't, this isn't a, f- uh, a theory you've heard about then, Jeff. No, no. I, it's
1: not something that I'm learning as, as you're, you're talking right now. So, uh, I mean, it absolutely makes sense. Um, and, and it is all to do with uh, energy transfer. Uh, that, that's the key thing, you know. Um, but no, not something I've come across, and not somebody I've heard of.
0: It's, yeah, it seems a real shame. So we won't go into huge amounts of detail, but some of the other stuff she did, she developed the first ma- the first mathematical cloud model.
2: This is well, so this is super important for us um, in the in the sort of thinking about the longer term climate. Um, so it turns out that uh, clouds are one of the really deep uncertainties, and the 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 um, the way that. Clouds behave and the way that that chain changes as climate changes um, is is still uncertain. But we're using climate model, uh, cloud models to understand that, and essentially we're trying to understand uh, whether clouds, as they change, will become more of a feedback, a stronger feedback on climate change, and make it worse, or um, or make it better, make, make sort of uh, be a negative feedback on climate change, and, and the evidence at the moment. Is that um, it 's going to become more of a, a feedback and, and make climate change worse so this the study of cloud models and how they relate to the real world is is you know huge ongoing research
1: so this this is the theory that um, uh, if, if if temperatures do increase or there 's more energy in the system, you will get more moisture evaporating uh, from seas and rivers and what have you that will create more cloud and the cloud will reflect an awful lot of the energy coming in from the sun and therefore might negate any of the bad effects that we're, we're thinking may happen
2: that's right but it also depends on the height of the clouds so which clouds um either trap heat more um or or uh, as you say jeff reflect more um the structure of the changes in those clouds will make the difference between whether they um, negate the, the effects of climate change or make, or make it worse um, so the cloud models are, are sort of still developing and it's still one of the big uncertainties that I, you know, I look at sometimes, uh, in my research. But, um, yeah, the, the cloud models are crucial. So the development of those cloud models early on is going to prove to be really important, I think.
0: That's, that's interesting. Some of the things you were saying, because I think previously before her work, people had just assumed clouds were a consequence of the weather. And they didn't have any impact. Whereas one of the things she came at it from the other end, which was sort of saying, "Well, clouds can also influence the weather and the climate," and right the you're climate, saying, Dagen. "Absolutely." Um, you know from basically it sounds like it was kind of her with a slide rule in an office almost and then you know early computers came along it's, it sparked this entire field of study which well, is really vital yeah it's her. a great
2: time to be inventing that stuff because computers are coming along right and the, the explosion in computing power means that you can take your models which you worked out with a slide rule and suddenly you can solve them uh, whereas we couldn't before and you get more and more detailed cloud models you can put more processes in the processes that you can um that you can actually resolve uh, getting smaller and smaller and smaller so you're getting a better idea you know closer and closer to to the real system
0: and i think you know she was very interested in in the observations of being able to then prove the models as well because it's all well and good coming up with your theory isn't it but you, you need to you need to test it um and um yeah, Jeff. So again, I'm slightly surprised you've never heard of her because she was really involved in aircraft surveys, which is kind of part of your, your line of work, isn't
1: it? Well, it is, yeah, but uh, I can only apologise.
0: No, 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 I'm not picking on you, don't <laughs> worry. Um, a little bit. A little, <laughs> uh, a little bit. I, I think I'm just trying to educate well, you. Know. You should it's, go back and quite, tell all your colleagues.
1: It's, it's quite surprising, really, because working in the Met Office um, uh, in this day and age, I mean, the, the, the amount of uh, women uh, around the building is, you know, I mean, I don't know what the percentage is, But it just seems so unnatural to me that that there wouldn't be women involved in in, uh, the science uh, going back in the day because, you know, they're absolutely fundamental, you know. know.
0: Exactly. And and I think she really had to fight to... um, It's
1: extraordinary. It's just...
0: Yeah, you know, I think there was um, one of her very early flight campaigns, the, the director of whatever institute it was, was a bit like, no, we don't have women flying on our plane. And it wasn't even, you know, being involved in the planning. It was just like that we don't have women. And somebody else, luckily for her, you know, equally senior, had clearly seen the benefit and said, this campaign doesn't take place unless she's on the flight. Um, and that's where it really started. Um But you're right, yeah. So, you know, only 50, 60 years later, it feels...
1: It just to being, me,
0: completely yeah. alien. I, you know, I haven't really experienced any of these issues. And she was one of the people that really paved the way. Um, and I think she felt that as a bit of a burden, actually, interestingly enough, that um, she knew she was kind of unique. Um, and that if she messed up, I think that was her words, it would potentially reflect badly on all other female scientists and meteorologists that might might follow her through. Yeah. Yeah, it must be said, we don't see much evidence of females in the archive. You know, you don't, we don't really have papers and diaries and that type of thing. We will get asked periodically, you know, we're looking for, you know, for especially private weather diaries. So sort of going back a bit, what have we got that shows women interested in the weather? And it's really hard to help people. We've got one or two things, but it's, you know, very few my kind of gut feeling is there must have been some good women there who were doing work, but it was all being presented by men possibly i don't know and I get the impression she maybe had to publish under you know using her initials, not her full name initially because it, she wouldn't have got the the credibility otherwise from it so it's, it's definitely been a struggle. And when, yeah, we look back in history and try and find these people, I mean, she was the first woman to ever receive um, the International Meteorological Organization Prize, which is very prestigious. Um, I mean, it was only um, initiated in 1956. And interestingly, Rosby got it in 1957. So, you know, <laughs> there's, there's a linkage there. Um, but she was given that in 2002, which seems really, really recent, you know, for that to be the first woman to ever gain an award. Absolutely. Um, and there's only been two women since, um, hopefully some of you might know who one of them was. I'm looking at blank faces. I know. I,
2: was it Julius Lingo? It was Julius Lingo. Yeah. Okay.
0: yeah. <laughs> so, um, Doug, do you want to tell yeah, the listeners uh, who for, Julius Lingo was? Until,
2: until recently, the, the, the chief scientist of the Met Office, um, and uh, we miss her. And... Um, uh, you know, another pioneering woman, it would be great to have her on the show. Maybe we could get her in one t- one time. We'll, we, we, I see nods from producers. So uh, <laughs> I, I hope that we could get uh, Professor Dame Julia Lingo into uh, uh, to, to have a talk about her challenges and, and, and what she saw through her career. Again, really strong in meteorology and really strong in, in climate science. And
1: yeah. she, was, she was our chief scientist, and this is, this is why it feels unnatural looking back, you know, because to me that was just perfectly normal, you know. She was, Absolutely. She was a brilliant woman, and she was, quite rightly, chief scientist here at the Met Office. So to go back, what, 30, 40, 50 years to find there was virtually no very, women. Very few. Or at least no recognised women. You know, um, well, that's that's an interesting thing, Jeff.
2: I wonder if there there is a lot of support that's been going on that isn't recognised. Yeah, and I, interesting I, I know
1: for, um, the, there was a recent thing from uh, NASA about the uh, the uh, Apollo Eleven, the moon landings, and the amount of women who were involved in that who never were given any credit. Um, for the for the work be, they put absolutely. in. So it's not just the Met Office. It's, it's, <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's a broad field. And it's interesting you mentioned NASA, actually, because NASA clearly did have a lot of women working there. But as you say, they weren't being given the credit. But um, Joanne Simpson does record that she went to NASA in 1975, 76, after she'd been struggling in a lot of other academic situations. Um, and But she reports that it was the first time that she'd met other Female scientists in an academic organisation. Up until that point, she'd basically kind of been a pioneer, and it had just been her and maybe some secretaries. And her surprise when she went to the the ladies' washroom and found that there were other female scientists in there having a chat about meteorology. Yeah, it was just incredible. Whereas NASA clearly was at least embracing the idea of diversity somewhat earlier than some of the other academic institutions. Well, well,
1: well they were, but they, they weren't giving them credit. do not give them credit. <laughs> no, know. that's
0: true. She did go on to um, be, I think, uh, the chief scientist of meteorology at NASA so clearly NASA moved on a bit since then um, I guess just to wrap up I mentioned the, the the trim satellite program so I should probably explain what that was so that was the tropical rainfall measuring mission um, which started in 1986 as a mission and it was um, NASA led initiative to put a satellite in space that would carry the first ever space-based Rain radar. So this would allow scientists to look at rainfall from space rather than up until then. I guess we had ground based radar and and measuring stations. Um, and then she sees this as one of her biggest accomplishments. I mean, really groundbreaking in terms of satellite detections. But what it also enabled them to do for the first time ever was to measure this, uh, moisture levels within the atmosphere all the way through from space. And so, um, Quite a way into its mission, almost near the end of its mission, they finally managed to produce a global map of, uh, of tropical moisture, which basically proved her theory from the 1950s. Brilliant. Which is perfect, isn't yeah, it? I mean, a it's a perfect way to wrap up your career.
2: Absolutely. And that, and that went for quite a long time, didn't it? That, I, I, I've used that data in the past. I, I, and it was quite a long um, mission, wasn't it? That I think day. it
0: was. I mean, I think I think the satellite lasted a long time. Yeah, yeah it's a really valuable data did, set. From so.
2: a climate sort of, um, again, from a climate perspective, having those long data sets is absolutely crucial. You know, one satellite or a series of satellites flying over and over again. So that especially um, uh, looking at moisture um, and water in the atmosphere, super, super important for climate change.
0: So the things that she did during her career, you know, she spawned a whole uh, field, if you like, in cloud physics. Lots of uh, airborne monitoring. She did some stuff to do with cloud seeding, but as a way to prove her models rather than, you know, just for itself. Um, and, you know, fundamental to some of these satellite missions that have given us a wealth of data that we're still using. So very interesting woman. You know, I think she does rank as one of those top meteorologists that we really should have in the Hall of Fame. Uh, hopefully everyone's agreeing with and me. Absolutely. 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 Brilliant. So I think we can count uh, Joanne Simpson as inducted into the Mostly Weather Hall of Fame. Fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> um, that's a great place to leave it. Thank you all for joining me on today's podcast. And if you want to find out any more about Joanne Simpson, we'll put things on the show notes. So please do go to our website, which is metoffice.gov.uk forward slash mostly-weather. Um, if you've got any questions or if you want to make a suggestion, particularly for a female scientist, that would be brilliant. Do tweet us um, at the handle, at NW That's M for mostly. I know it sounds like an M when I say it. Um, uh, you can tweet me. I'm at Claire S. Whittam.
2: I'm at Peg McNeil. I'm at Jeff N. Brown.
0: And Catherine, I know, doesn't have a Twitter handle, no, but there's loads of interesting you. stuff in the archives yeah, as well that's about great. all sorts Have a look on our catalogue. There's all sorts of things you can find. Great, thank you all for joining me, and until the next episode, goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.